Welcome everybody to Open Pod Pod. I'm Amanda Buena de Mosquita. I'm a systemic psychotherapist and open dialogue practitioner, and I'm passionate about us bringing new ways of learning and talking and dialogue to each other. And that's the purpose of this. Hello, folks. Welcome to Open Pod Pod. My name is Billy Hardy, and I'm also a systemic psychotherapist and have been interested in working with the ideas of open dialogue for many years now. So it's a great pleasure for me to share some ideas with Amanda on these pods and then see where it takes us. The idea behind these is to create dialogue. We're hoping that the people listening to us will create a reflection on what we're speaking about and hence create more dialogue and a polyphony of voices. I hear what you're saying about being on the edge, but at the same time, having had the privilege of training with you, you're very much in my inner dialogue. Even though you might be at the edge of these conversations and pods, you do form part of my own polyphony of voices. Sure. No, and I, th- I appreciate that. And I think that you're, the way that you articulate that is, is affirming and noticeable, very noticeable. Because you do, when you're talking about it, you, just as you've just done, you've prefaced it. And, and that makes it, it almost makes it thicker, to use a narrative description. It's a thicker description of the experience. Mm-hmm. When you say to someone, you're part of my inner dialogue, and, and it seems to me it's becoming more acceptable to talk to people even people you don't know that well, about their inner dialogue. And I, and I find myself talking with people about inner dialogues that, that I've never spoken to before about them. And, and they're like, oh, yeah, we knew, we knew about this. <laughs> it's like reading that thing from my daughter. She, she knew about this stuff. Uh, we just didn't have a conversation about it. And then it's such a, it's such a surprise to me. I just want to make a comment about that, back to that wonderful GP yesterday that I met. And he said that most of the people that he looks after, the homeless people, are using drugs, etc. Yeah. And he said to them, I never ask people why they're using. Mm. I ask them if they know why they're using. Yeah. And that wisdom really has also stayed with me and I thought it's not confrontational it's Mm. asking about someone's inner dialogue sure it's asking about their own reflections and it is it is also links up to the question you said earlier on is am I have are we having the conversation that you that's useful to you today that you want to have etc and I think being aware of inner dialogues is critical because we also always think about open dialogue as being in a pure sense of having more than one practitioner in the room. Mm. But maybe one practitioner also has other practitioners in their heads. I've certainly got you in my head. Does that count as two? (laughs) Or am I still just one? (laughs) How's that work? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I do have lots of people in my head. It's a bit full. If I can give, if I can give you, I'll give you a pictorial image of this because I, I'm working on some heads at the moment, 
but it looks a bit like this. At this point in the conversation, Billy is showing us a white ceramic sculpture of a face by Johnson Tsang. That's J-O-H-N-S-O-N-T-S-A-N-G. And the website is johnsonsangart.com. So take a look at some of the sculptures and you can see what we're talking about, quite literally. Oh, I love that. It is good, isn't it? But I, I'm just, oh, here's a brilliant one. I'm just experimenting myself with these ideas. Gosh. Good stuff, isn't it? Can you imagine? I just wish I had some of these things when I was teaching. I was just thinking that they are <laughs> such a beautiful, uh, like a conversational tool, aren't they? Yeah, and it's good stuff, isn't it? Very evocative. And and if, you, if you're really, if you're really interested in, in the dialogues, this is the image you want. Ah, oh, wow, that's lovely. <laughs> it's, it looks like a person trying to climb out of their own head. Yes, indeed. That's what it's like. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I think that's a really powerful piece of art. How many times have people wanted to climb out of their own head? Oh, ten times a day, and that's just today. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, and it, it is, it's very powerful stuff. And I remember coming across it a number of years ago and being blown away by it and thinking, oh, my goodness, how did that work? And, I'm just yeah. struck by something. We've often in our pods stumbled into artistic medium, music or dance. Yeah. We've had a conversation about your guitars, Billy. I'm moving to sculpture. Yes. Fiona's actually drawing as we're speaking. <laughs> and yeah. I don't even have anything specific to say about it. I'm just noticing how, I guess it's this, I guess what I'm thinking, I never know. Who was the philosopher who said, you don't know what you think until you say it out loud? I don't know what my thoughts are until I've heard them out loud. Was it Bakhtin? Maybe not. Maybe so. Bakhtin. Was it Bakhtin? Yeah. I don't know. Anyway, I'm thinking about the richness of communicating and I'm thinking about the patterns and the weaving and the expression of people and how, even well, especially when people are in distress or mm. not, how we, are, how we all express ourselves. I do think about that we need it sitting and stopping and interpreting and feeling seems to get so lost in the doing and not only that how the medical model that I've remembered my thought now the medical model categorizes everything this is art and this is music and this is guitar mm. this is sculpture today and doodling mm. by Fiona mm. and yet actually none of it needs categorizing it's no, yeah it's all part of it I don't say I don't say I'm going to talk about art now and I'm going to talk about this or music or a lot of stuff is comes out in metaphor, doesn't it? It does with us. Yeah, it emerges from our conversation. Yeah. But that's something we're trying to shift with the open dialogue. We're trying to shift back to that blurry space of communicating where it isn't a division between your body and your mind and your symptoms. All of the language around somebody being a service user instead of a person being discharged instead of go home or having a having an assessment instead of a conversation it's all dehumanizing yeah they're they're, they're all designed to be that way why what benefit is it 
people don't think about it too closely. Except if we're just thinking about hospitals, for example, it, it reminds me of going to Dutch hospitals in the 90s. And they're working, and this wasn't a psychiatric hospital, it was a some medical hospital, and they're working really hard at not dehumanizing the process. And that, that always stuck with me. The, you go into the foyer of a hospital and there's an orchestra playing, and immediately you think, what the hell is an orchestra doing here in a, in a foyer of a hospital? And then you walk down the corridor and, and then there's all this art on display. It's all hanging from the ceiling. And it, it's just a way of making a statement about, yeah, these places have, have the impact of dehumanizing people, but we're trying hard not to do that. I just think it's great. I was very struck when I visited Finland and we went to the original Karapuda Hospital. Yeah. And we were talking about the office and how often it's such a place of anger with people banging on a door because they want to be spoken to or interacted with or they've got a question or whatever. Mm. And it raises incidences and issues. And they just worked out if you just left the door open yeah the problems went away or significantly yeah. reduced sure because all that you did was leave the door open and it stopped yeah. the us and them yeah wow yeah. it's what we're doing with open dialogue isn't it we're opening the door yeah we're hoping to open dialogue is like open door log i did a radio show when i was younger did you Mm. And I always feel like that here. I think it's because I've got a microphone and headphones on. And of course, silences were the worst bit. I had my producer scowling at me through the window like, you've got to speak. Mm. So I almost would love us to be able to do the opposite of having a conversation Mm -hmm. and just be able to have a being together. Of course, you can't translate that into a pod, the silent Mm. pod. I don't know. Yeah. John Cage managed to translate it into a composition. Who did, Fiona? Wasn't it John Cage? Yes. Yeah, you're right. Well remembered. Can I just make a comment, Fiona? Your hair is the same colour as the background, and I've just noticed it. Is that your own special background, or when you've got your hair that colour, or is it something else? These are the padded boxes that we now work in. There's a little glass door here. There's a handle here. Oh, I see. Mm. Oh, my God. She's doing open pod pod in a pod. I'm touching both walls now. Oh, dear. (laughs) And this is the padded bright pink surface behind me. In the olden days, they used to put patients who were disturbed in a padded cell. Now they put the dialoguers or the practitioners in the the half padded thingy. It's so symbolic, Mm. isn't it? They very much are like small human cupboards. They're a little bit like telephone boxes. Yeah, now that you say that, I, yeah. Yeah. In fact, a telephone box would have been much nicer. Well, that's interesting. But it is interesting, isn't it? You're just making me think, Billy. It's, mm. We've gone from working individually to being hailed. now, And then we worked in communal offices, but then nobody could hear themselves think. Yeah. So now we've put people back into little cells. Yeah. And it's almost like what we're doing with mental health, isn't it? If you think of a tribe or an Aboriginal, we've gone from someone's upset and you all come out and you all dance yeah. and you interact yeah. together as a group. And yeah. 
to us going, oh no, the Western way is far better, far better. Just put everything into little portions and really become expert in each individual part of one's body or mind. And now we've got open dialogue where we're going, oh, do you know what would be really nice if we talked to each other and had a sense of community again and went went back to where we were. And it's just, it's almost like we're back in the middle, aren't we? Back in the middle. It's like a cycle of activity. That's why I like the song Stuck in the Middle with you. Yes. It's my go-to song. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. That's it. That's the line. And I wanted to use that line in a chapter of a book that I was writing, but I wasn't allowed to use it because of copyright. Oh, did you seek permission? No, I didn't get permission because the person who wrote the song is dead. And because Jerry Rafferty wrote the song, I was asked to write a chapter about being stuck and the sentence stuck in the middle with you. And like you, Fiona, you were doing a drawing. I was doing a drawing as the person was talking to me about the chapter. And I was taking instructions from them, doodling on a piece of paper. And the song became the anthem for the chapter, you see. And I found a way around using the lyrics as in the chapter. It enhanced it in any way. It was just, I felt so aggrieved at not being able to use it. Or or even, as some people had got away with in the past, using song references in chapters as long as they were referenced in a particular way but the publishers didn't like it and I thought oh gosh here we go you've moved into something else though Billy and it does again sorry to come back to open dialogue again but there's about it's about ownership Mm. it's making me think about ownership and how does being part of community and interacting with each other and humanitarian approaches Mm butt up against this is my training program and that's your training program and that's this training Mm. program. Because Mm. actually, I always remember, I'm going to jump to cars. I always remember hearing, and I might be wrong, that Ford were the first people to invent a defrosting front windscreen Mm -hmm. because we've all had at the back, but we didn't Mm. have heated front windscreens. Mm. And in the end, it's such a safety component that they needed to share it. Mm. They had to share it. And I'm thinking... I think that about open dialogue. It isn't about who owns the training or who does this or who does that. Actually, if we think just about the philosophy, mm. it, it, it shouldn't be owned. It doesn't need ownership. No, because if you start going down that route, then we're going to have to pay tax on the words that we use. Yeah. And um, that's going to be expensive, isn't it? And we might, and if you're syntactically challenged, you might get charged on the spaces between the words. There's a dystopian novel in that. There is a dystopian novel, but it's in the making, Fiona. It's the 15-minute city. We're living it. We are in it. Yeah. There's something about most dystopias that is uh, reminiscent of things that we come across each day, which I think is what's so important about reading around and reading a lot. There's something about accessing honesty through fiction. Yeah. Do you want to see my drawing now that it's extremely crowded? Oh, that's brilliant. That is brilliant. <laughs> can you put it on so that people can click it as part of listening to this? I can work something out. That is I amazing. Think it'd be fun to put you. That is brilliant. Yeah. There are two elephants, the ones, the both the ones that you both talked about. Oh, fantastic. 
When I was married, one birthday, my ex-husband bought me an elephant from London Zoo. You can adopt them. Oh! It was such a lovely gift. And I had this card and it was like, it was my elephant. And I was in my 40s then. And I phoned up London Zoo and I said, hello. I said, my husband's bought me an elephant. And I was just having a a bit of fun. I went, when will it be delivered? And they were quick as anything. She went, when are you home, madam? (laughs) 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 yeah (laughs) i've never forgotten that i just thought oh it's such a lovely moment yeah oh that's brilliant (laughs) she didn't even balk yeah when are you home madam (laughs) (laughs) fantastic we feel like we've come to a kind of it's a plateau Hmm. we're on a plateau and i think it's okay because when you're on a plateau you can look around and see where you are and What's the next step that you're going to take to the next plateau? Which connects with the Odessa trial is ending. Post-Odessa is opening up. Yeah. And it's very exciting because that's about praxis. It's not Mm. about theory. I think you're right about what we said as well, is that if you had your magic wand, you'd go back to the beginning. And I think the reality of a lot of transformations is that they're not thought of systemically. They're thought of individually. It's just the way we think about science. And when we're designing courses, they have to be designed in a particular way that they can be evaluated in a particular way, which has to be scientific. And so they follow a particular format. And, you know, even when I was teaching in Swansea all those years ago, everything had to be researchable, even Mm -hmm. as a teacher. So every subject that you had, Every day someone would be saying, there's a paper in that, there's a paper in that. And because I would open my big mouth, that's a paper, Billy, that's a paper. And I, I ended up being very quiet then because I was, everything, not everything is can be turned into some sort of research paper. And I think I remember very much writing suddenly, no, I remember the moment of suddenly looking at my bookshelf because I loved buying my books and realising that I only bought the books of the theorists who agreed with me. I've got a yeah. sycophantic bookshelf. Yeah. Right? <laughs> yeah. And and I would learn a lot more if I bought the books for the people that I didn't like yeah. or agree with. And how you couldn't have a thought without validating it because someone else putting that thought in print somehow gives it an academic truthiness to it. The well, whole you, thing uh, is bonkers. Yeah. No, but the thing is when you're building... <laughs> When you're building a practice and there's a body of knowledge, then you do have to read the people who coalesce around the body of knowledge so it deepens your understanding. Then when you've done that, you can get rid of it. All of our bookshelves have got people that we get drawn towards. I've got lots of agreeable people on my bookshelf, but I did so because I thought, I I need to learn more about this stuff. And then after a while, you, as probably you do now, and both of you probably do, when you pick up a book and it's about theory, you're not reading it like a novel. You're going to chapter six and you're reading chapter six, and then it goes on the shelf until the next time you need the book, and then you go to another chapter. They're for yeah. reference. They're not story. It's not a storytelling thing. And just to clarify that you're in my internal dialogue, yeah. I remember what you called everybody. You called them my textual friends. <laughs> <laughs> I only borrowed that from someone else. <laughs> I, I, I had the idea. I thought it was 
at the time, I thought the idea was really trendy to talk Good. about textual friends. And I, and when I heard it, at first I thought, how pretentious is that? No, I like it. And I think of it now. I've got those words in my head from you. They're my textual friends. I mean, someone <laughs> once told me many years ago, if you're reading literature of a particular body of knowledge and it sounds familiar, then be kind to yourself and tell yourself you're in the right place. Yeah. Have you seen that card of an elephant and he's on the on his therapist's couch and he goes, even when I'm actually in the room, nobody speaks about me. Nobody talks to me or something. I saw elephants yesterday, actually. I was walking through London and they had some beautiful bronzed elephants. Oh, well, I'm glad. Um, I thought you were going to say they were just wandering around London. You know? Oh, I'd love that. They were so, yeah. I loved them. They were so beautiful. And she definitely knew me after a while. And I often thought when they say they never forget, like going back and going, hey, mm. hi, it's me. See if she remembered me. Yeah. yeah. I, think they, you, I think you could say the same about horses. Mm. Because I, I did a project many years ago on equine psychotherapy. And the thing is, the horse and the elephant, they're sentient beings. Of course they are. Yeah, there's just, just wonderful connection between both of them. So big, and it makes us as human beings, feel so small. And I don't know much about elephants, but and I don't know much about horses, but I remember I, I, I made a course on equine psychotherapy, and I had to speak equus. You had to learn horse. You had to learn horse. And that was interesting in itself because, and, and most animals do it, to know the shorthand that I would tell myself back then was I was learning to be a horse whisperer. Oh, yes. Because <laughs> that's what it is. It's, it's learning equus. And most people who have horses, most people who live amongst horses, they get it. And I can tell you that I met some women from West West Wales who came to see me. They had I was putting together a course or a piece of research and they came to see me, and they thought I was a professor of horse horses. It's true. That's and, it. That's the title. And I, they said, we'd like you to come to Carmarthen. And I said, oh, okay then, what, what would you want me to do? We want to introduce you to our herd of horses. This is a true story. I went, as you do, you just blindly go off and say, yes, I'm going to West Wales to be around horses. And I went down there, and these women had a herd of horses. And I will connect this with Scandinavia in a moment. But they had, we went into this field, and we stood there, and the women said, they will be here soon. And she gave me a stick. And the stick, it was a big pole with a round bit on the top. Like you might see someone who's blind has got a stick and they've got a round thing on the end. It was a bit like that, but it was longer than that. And this pole is used, it's the distance that you should be between a human being and a horse, but it's the horses makes the decision about the distance, not the person with the pole. So I'm given this pole and they said, when they appear, just use this pole. And I was like, to do what? Just hold it out in front of you. And I was like, okay. After about five minutes, 
this herd of horses come tramping over the hill towards us. And of course, they knew all the women, but they didn't know me. But I t and they said, hold the pole out. So I held the pole out like that. And all the horses stood at the end of the pole. And we were there for about 10 minutes. And the woman said, you can just put the pole down slowly. So I put the pole down slowly. And the horses came forward and started sniffing me and eating my clothes and stuff like that. And they said, you're in. I was in the gang. And then the women said, now we have to ride. These women ride these horses bareback. And they got on the horses and they were riding the horses. I couldn't go on the horse because I, I can't ride horses, certainly not bareback or any other way of riding horses. But I told this story that I'm telling you to someone. I was at a conference up in the Lake District and there was a woman there who was a systemic consultant for the Danish military. And she said, I so like your story, Billy. She said, I do lots of management consultation. And this, she's telling me this story. She said, once a year, I go out to Iceland and I take all these managers with me and we ride bareback across Iceland. Iceland. And in Iceland, they are small little horses. They're in between Shetland ponies and usual size horses. And if you've got a tall person, then it looks as if the feet are on the ground. thing. And they ride these horses across Iceland. It's really incredible. And she said to me, this was a number of years ago, she said, you must come to Iceland. She thought I could ride horses. I know nothing about them. So I try and avoid horse people. I don't even talk horse, horse to people. I don't even mention this to them because they think I'm good. I can jump on a horse or something, but I can't. Anyway, I just thought I'd just add that to round off our, as we were talking That's, about sentient beings other than human beings. It seems beautiful. a good way to finish. It's interesting when you think the first thing we say to somebody who comes into the open dialogue is who's important to you. Yeah. Could be a horse. It could be. And, and yes, it, it could very much be that. And that's why the question that you may ask is, what's the most important relationship in your life at the moment? Mm. And people would say all sorts of things. It leaves it open to do for definition. It does leave it open. And I think it also leaves less pressure on if you've got on what family are you bringing, sure. because some yeah. people don't have that. But who is somebody who is the most important is... Sure. And I was thinking that oddly back to my lovely homeless GP yesterday, the GP yeah. of the homeless, to think maybe somebody there would bring somebody else who's homeless that's most important mm. to them, to the conversations. The yeah. pathways from Odessa are like the pathways that an elephant has to tread. They never forget. And that's it for this episode of Open Pod Pod. Join us for the next episode.